welcome to The Week Ahead in Russia, RFERL's Monday podcast about significant developments and upcoming events in Moscow and beyond. I'm Steve Gutterman, and my guest today is Alison Edwards, a lecturer at Bath Spy University in the UK and an expert on Russian militarism, youth, memory, and patriotic education. In other words, uh, the ideal guest uh, for today, for May 9th which Russia celebrates as Victory Day. Uh, welcome, Dr. Edwards, and thanks very much for joining me today. Thanks so, so much for having me, Steve. All right, it's great to have you on the podcast, uh, first time guest, um, uh, and I think it's a great occasion for this. Um, my first question is about the history uh, of the Kremlin's use of Victory Day in general and the Red Square military parade in particular, uh, for purposes of, of propaganda and signaling both to Russian and foreign audiences. Uh, I don't know about Britain, but from my experience living in Russia um, through much of the 1990s and 2000s, I think it's fair to say that World War II looms substantially larger in the minds of many Russians than it does in the minds of many Americans for a number of, of good reasons. But one reason, and I think this applies particularly uh, since Putin came to power more than 20 years ago, is the emphasis that the state puts on it uh, with the elaborate military parade on uh, Red Square on, on May 9th as the centerpiece. Uh, this is a broad question, Dr. Edwards, but before we uh, get to this year's parade, um, the commemoration of a war that ended 78 years ago, uh, while the war Russia launched against Ukraine is causing death and destruction daily. I wonder if you could, you could speak uh, before that a little bit about the history of these ceremonies and how the Kremlin uh, has used them through the years or the decades. Yes, thank you for this question. I think that's a really important point, um, actually, that the context really helps us understand we kind of where where we are today in terms of how Russia kind of manages its memory landscape. Um, I think that, um, you know, you, you lived in, in Russia, as you said, in the 1990s and 2000s, and that's kind of the 1990s particularly is some of the research, is, is some of kind of the main research I did as part of my PhD, and I focused on this commemoration um, of the Great Patriotic War. And I think that one of kind of, the main kind of thing I want to talk about first is, you know, where these traditions come from, the tradition of um, not just the Great Patriotic War in general, but the use of the military parade. And don't worry, I'm not going to kind of take us into this long history of Russia from uh, its beginning. But I do think that a lot of the times when we're speaking about what's taking place in Russia today, particularly um, in terms of how Russia memorializes the Great Patriotic War, we kind of attribute a lot of this to Putin. You know, Putin has added his own um, personality I'll say, to the to the way that Russia um, celebrates the Soviet victory. Um, but I think that a lot of it is Putin dressing something that's already existed. You know, the framework has existed for some time. And I think this is across maybe three or four areas in which we can focus. The first one, I would say, continues using the parades in general, using the parades as a way of commemorating and celebrating um, parts of history that Russia um, celebrates, but also using it in society more generally. And what I'm thinking about here is, is really the tradition of military 
ceremony in Russia, dating as far back to Imperial Russia. You know, the parades that we see on Red Square, while they are specific, you know, in choreography and the messaging to the Great Patriotic War, the actual use of the military parade as a form of memorialization, celebration, and as um, a showcasing of power was actually used much, much before. There was an exercise of power that was probably the kind of the central element for why the imperial leaders used it. But this element proves true to the Russian state's kind of continued use of the parade today. You know, why use parades? What what are their utility or what, what is its utility? Surely kind of a wreath on the tomb of the unknown soldier. History lessons in classes and museums are enough. But not for Russia. And I think this is partly because a parade is a huge declaration of Russian power or what it hopes to declare you know it hopes to show itself as a, as a power on, on a global stage i think that um this is particularly true this was particularly true in 1945 the first actual victory day parade dedicated to the great patriotic war it was coming out of the second world war leaders of the soviet union wanted to declare their superpower status and they did this in such a grand way what we see now particularly from commentators especially you know us people us sitting on the outside of Russia looking in, is a concentration on kind of um, whether the Russia is a superpower and whether the parades themselves are a showcasing of this power um, and whether that power can be reflected in these parades. So a lot of the discussions you'll see today and, and as before in previous years is around, you know, how many tanks are on Red Square, how many people are on Red Square, what type of speech um, has Putin given? Is it showing Russian power? And you'll you'll find this in, in lots of commentary about the Great Patriotic War and the Victory Day parades in general. There's a focus on that power. And that's something that Putin's adopted um, from leaders before him in the Soviet Union who decided to choose him as a parade as a way of showcasing um, and celebrating the Great Patriotic War. But he's taken it to this new level. And I think this is kind of where we can then look at the second um, aspect, the second aspect I wanted to focus on kind of at the start, which is the cult of the Great Patriotic War victory. We now see this as kind of insane, over the top um, memorializations of the Great Patriotic War, not necessarily in the, the kind of remembrance of the war itself, but in, for example, the dressing up of young children in um, army gear and um, sitting in prams that have been decorated as if they were tanks. Um, and this is something that I would say is more general of the Putin area, that kind of hyperbolic celebration of Victory Day parade. But the actual cult of the great patriotic victory itself was born in the Brezhnev era. And a lot of people kind of attribute that to Brezhnev himself in the sense that, you know, he was not uh, as... You know, he was so young when the October Revolution took place and what he did during his time in office was kind of centered the Great Patriotic War because he felt like he was also centering himself as someone who was a who was a veteran of the Great Patriotic War into the celebrations itself. And, and what he did during that time was kind of maneuver the um, interest and identity of the Soviet Union from the October Revolution itself which still existed and people still kind of memorialize it today, but centered it more so on that great patriotic war victory. Um, and, it, you know, one of the things that we can talk about is, and, and I won't do this in much depth, but during the Soviet period itself, national huge parades that we see today in Russia only took place on big anniversary dates. 
the first being 1945, the second being 1965, 1985 was the third one, and then in 1990, just before the collapse of the Soviet Union itself. Um, so it was during the 1960s, that 1965 parade itself, that the cult of that great victory um, was formed, that idea of the Great Patriotic War is something that should be central to Russia's, um, uh, not Russia, the Soviet Union during that time, the Soviet Union's identity. And I, I don't know, this might be something that you experienced yourself, but when we moved into to the 1990s, the wars, um, the wars, sorry, the um, the, vict the victory parades themselves kind of ceased to exist um, until 1995, until the 50th anniversary of the Great Patriotic War. And this was something that was actually, and, and this was something I explored in my PhD, it was a huge talking point um, in the political discussions of the time. 1995, lots of people in the state, Duma, including Yeltsin themselves, wanted to reposition the Soviet victory as a Russian victory, right? So what they were doing in 1995 was they were framing a victory of a now basically collapsed empire and trying to reframe it into relevance. And Yeltsin did this by Russifying the memory in, a, in Russia's physical landscape. So they created the Moscow's victory um, museum, for example, which included kind of religious tropes to showcase a departure from the Soviet past. But the parade itself on Red Square remained largely untouched. And I think it's because that itself was kind of sacred. Now, there's two things that I should mention here. There were two parades in 1995, um, one of which was on Poklanaya Gora um, and one of which was on Red Square. The one on Red Square remains pretty much as we see it today. Um, but they had veterans rather than younger military cohorts. And then on Popanaya Gora, you had the exact same kind of choreography taking place, but with younger cohorts. So those uh, the, the students of the cadet courts, for example, they were playing this role of the glorious dead. Um, and, and what we see, however, with that, with the celebrations from 1945 to 1965 to 1985, 1990 and 1995 is the same choreography. We see the same Soviet paraphernalia. We're seeing the same um, process. So I don't really know how to explain this apart from um, you know, in 1945, we had General Zhukov, for example, um, on horseback going to each faction or each unit and congratulating them. Just as today we have Sergei Shogu in his car um, going to each faction and congratulating them for their victory in the Great Patriotic War. So a lot of the things have stayed the same. And what we're seeing kind of with Putin today is adding, adding to traditions that have already existed adding to that in a, a definitely a more extreme way um, through, as I said earlier, the hyperbolic kind of memorializations of, of the victory cult. Um, there's kind of a quick uh, outline of the history um, of, of those Victory Day parades, but um, it, it kind of paints a picture of Putin's not kind of the, um, he's not the manufacturer of what we see today, but what he's done is he's renovated it and he's added to it. And um, I, I'm sure there will be plenty of people um, in the Soviet Union and even in, in Russia, it's um, in the Soviet Union, oh my gosh, in Russia um, and in countries that were part of the Soviet Union, sorry, um, who will now kind of be looking at the use of this great um, victory as with dismay, with dismay and with disappointment, definitely from the, from the state. 
Absolutely. Um, that that's fascinating. Uh, fascinating history. A, a lot of things I, I didn't know. Um, uh, just I'll just point to a couple of things, kind of um, that your your words made me think of. Um, you know, I guess you, you. I think you mentioned the idea of Brezhnev kind of moving away from the history of, of the revolution and, and kind of turning more toward the toward the. Um, uh, you know, toward the victory in, 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 the, in, the, in the Second World War um, as a focal point. And of course, Putin, in, in fact, has been very critical of Lenin. Um, and so, you know, for him, I think it's, you know, that's kind of a natural thing that he, that he, would, he would want to, to continue with, the idea that, you know, this is the moment of, of, of greatness, um, you know, not not the revolution, which he, you know, he calls Lenin put, put a time bomb under the country, uh, things like that. Um, another thing, but, but just to segue, I guess, to discussion of, and, and I do, yeah, I do remember, thanks. I mean, um, I, my memory is actually not, not that great, but I, I do remember that, you know, there weren't really parades for part of the nineties. And then, uh, there's one, um, and I, what I'm trying to remember is whether there was kind of wep- I feel like in the 2000s was the first time that they again returned, you know, uh, you know weapons like um, machinery, tanks, and such to to Red Square, but but I'm not sure. I do recall, of course, uh, in the 2000s, missiles being um, standing around uh, in central Moscow in the days before in the days before the parade, just to. You know, and that kind of makes me think of what you say about, you know, in the West, most people think maybe um, laying a wreath is enough or, you know, that sort of thing. Um, but uh, it's, it's sort of not the same, at least for the, for the Russian state. Um, now, uh, another thing you mentioned is the way this is that this parade and I guess others, you know, before the, before the Soviet era, um, been used as a projection of power, um, and and in the context of today's today's uh, events and today's Red Square Parade, I just wanted to ask about that because it seemed like, I mean, I think people are noticing that um, there was uh, less military material uh, than there had been in, in previous years. I don't I don't really recall last year very much, but um, you know, with the war in Ukraine. You know whether it's security concerns or the fact that, in fact, uh, a lot of uh, military equipment has been destroyed, or well, people might think, why? Why do you have them? Why are you parading them on Red Square? They should be at the front. But for whatever reason or reasons, um, you know, there was less of that. There was no aviation, uh, no no jets kind of screaming overhead. So I think, to some degree, it was. You know, at least superficially, less of a projection of power than it has been in the past, which may be kind of paradoxical given the, the fact that Russia is, is in this war of aggression that it that it uh, that it started. Um, but but I, I guess I'll, I'll um, use that as a way to ask the second question, which is um, more about today's today's parade. Um, this is, of course, as I mentioned, the second time. Um, that this anniversary, the May 9th, has come around since Putin launched the full-scale invasion of Ukraine uh, in February 2022. And the war, um, 
and and what what has become in fact the the um, the largest war in Europe since World War II, um, and you know really the war that Russia launched is surreal in, in many in many horrifying ways. Um, it's the 21st century. Russia's killing tens of thousands of people and destroying cities in an unprovoked assault on its neighbor. Um, this is happening now, and yet Putin and the Kremlin are celebrating victory in a war that ended almost 80 years ago. Uh, Allison, is there, is there anything that stood out for you as um, different or somehow significant in this year's ceremonies, in the military parade or in Putin's speech, for example? I guess anything that provides real clues about intentions or you know, whether in terms of Ukraine or the West or the Russian populace. Thanks, Steve. Thanks for your commentary then. There were so many things that you mentioned then that I've just been thinking, oh, I want to kind of jump in and say something about that. So I'm I'm just going to talk about some of those points you made really quickly. And, you know, the, the point you made about, you know, why are why is this equipment here and not on the front? And people will be asking that question. I think they're asking probably the right questions. They're asking the right questions of the Russian state, given that, you know, Russia has occurred significant losses. Um, during the start of the um, this this newer invasion of of Ukraine, um, but I also think that's probably a result as well, also of the fact that people aren't hearing um, these things unless they have access to VPN, for example, because the state is kind of keeping control over these narratives. I also think the other thing that you've mentioned here is, you know, people in Russia will be looking at this parade and wondering why there isn't such. A, a great show of power. If we think of power in terms of people on the on Red Square, and if we think of power as well in terms of actual vehicle count, you know, um, because this year, so I think it was something like twenty twenty one or twenty twenty, there were fourteen thousand troops on uh, Red Square, so standing on Red Square, and this year they're counting between eight and ten thousand. So there's there's quite a, a significant amount less than only two years ago. And that was even more so in terms of the vehicles that adorned. So I was looking at um, analyses of the parade earlier and saw that there was 197 vehicles used in the 2021 Victory Day Parade, but today only around 51. And one of those, only one of them being an actual tank. And actually some of them were also taken from Chechnya. Um, so it's, I think that really, you know, Given that Russia lives in this particular um, perpetual narrative that it is under constant kind of, uh, it is uh, consistently vulnerable to outside forces, you'd think that they were taken into consideration in previous, um, let's say previous parades, not to put all of their, their troops or all of their vehicles out there, given the fact that if they then do go to war, they need to give some of those, um, the, the troops, plus the vehicles, plus the military hardware for the actual war effort. And also to kind of show the society that they're living in, that there's still a sort of stability, a calm, that they are in control of the situation, which this parade doesn't necessarily show. In terms of the actual question you've asked me, there are a few things that stood out, but they weren't particularly different. The thing that stood out to me the most was definitely the lack of people and military hardware on on the actual um, Red Square itself, which, as I said, that would have been what people were looking out for today. That would have been a lot of what the commentators were looking for. The second thing for me is that um, the Immortal Regiment, 
is a pivotal part of the Victory Day celebrations. The Immortal Regiment themselves, for anyone who's not kind of um, in the know on, on this part, they're a regiment that was set up in Tomsk um, originally um, about 12 years ago now. So the the Tomsk itself is um, a, a city just about four hours north of Novosibirsk. Um, and it's a very small city, but it has like a huge... Um, I guess, following for the Great Patriotic War. Um, I mean, in the sense that it has this huge memorial um, in Tomsk itself um, and has actual um, museums for such as well. Um, but yeah, so the Immortal Regiment kind of started there. And, and what will happen is that normally people will march with pictures of their loved ones who were lost in the war. And if you are someone who didn't have a relative who was actually um, or directly linked to the war, you can actually pick up another picture of someone else um, who was linked to the war. So you can also walk around with a stranger's picture and memorialise them as part of this immortal regiment um, ceremony, I would guess. But this year, that's not taking place as it normally would. So normally there would be huge marches kind of through cities holding the pictures of these of their loved ones. Um, but this year it's being carried um, on in other formats. Again, site and security concerns. So this is mostly online. They did this during the COVID years and also during 2021. Um, and then the Auto Regiment kind of came back last year. But this year now they're saying that actually they need to return back online because having people massed um, in a group would actually make Ukraine more likely to um, attack. This is what they're saying. Um, I think that if, at the same time, however, I do wonder, you know, given the desire of the Immortal Regiment to go international, to have an international presence, whether online as well was a strategy of being able to include more people in, in the movement. Um, so those are the two kind of physical things that struck me. But then we get to Putin's speech. I think it was a, it was pretty much a short speech, but it was full of punch. Um, not necessarily in what he was saying, but how he was saying it. He he came across as very like angered. Um, that's kind of the tone that I took from the speech itself. But the context were very much as expected. You know, we first kind of start off with him speaking about Russia being a savior of mankind from Nazis um, during the Second World War. And so what we see already is kind of Russia and Putin himself tapping into this messianic kind of and moral identity that Russia wants to tap into. He then very quickly kind of descends into this discussion on how Russia's being kind of provoked. Um, he also refers to um, the West as kind of conducting a crusade against Russia. That was one of the quotes that I, I wrote down when I was listening to his speech, carrying out a crusade against Russia. Um, this is the first kind of time I would say that he... he in this context, I would say, outlines that the West is waging a real war against Russia. Um, but he also talks about the Western as kind of global elites, pushing exclusivity and sowing seeds of hatred. And he talks about hatred, sowing seeds of hatred, particularly in reference to, for example, traditional family values, which Russia has positioned itself as having defended or it always defending, for example. The crusade against Russia by the West, by the Western global elites, as Putin has said, kind of fits more into the general framework that lives within Russian society, that Russia is vulnerable to outside forces, as I noted earlier. Um, and that actually, you know, Russia wants to live this peaceful, free and stable life. So these were kind of um, ideas that I would have expected to see before I even tuned into the speech itself. And, and he delivered in the sense of kind of feeding into it. 
he kind of talks, he, he places Russia as kind of responsible, not just for saving um, mankind from Nazis um, in the in the Great Patriotic War, but also about his and, and people in Russia's responsibility for maintaining um, maintaining um, memories of, of the Great Patriotic War by outlining that memorials are being destroyed, history is being erased and desecrated with lies. These are narratives that haven't just kind of come out of um, Russia's most recent invasion of Ukraine in 2022. They've been around for a while. Um, and they are, they are ideas that have been even kind of outlined in Russia's constitution in, the, in 2020, where they outlined a historical truth clause. They basically said that it was prohibited for anyone to kind of talk about great patriotic war memory in um, any way that um, diminishes their success. So this is these these ideas, as I said, are expected because they're not necessarily ones that have come out of the invasion um, of Ukraine, but they're ones that Putin has used and adapted and renovated for for this year. I think one of the kind of more interesting ones, the one, interesting discussions that Putin brings up, or at least he kind of re reiterates, is he's also using this space to speak to the Ukrainian people. That's something that I got today. He kind of speaks about the Ukrainian people as being held hostage by the state, which I think is is kind of um, an important part of his discourse that doesn't often get um, attention. Because what we look at first is, is are the hawkish um, ideas that he perpetuates or his discussions about Russia being vulnerable, for example, which I've also, you know, I tend to sometimes focus on those. But also what we can see in Putin's speech is his desire to want to speak to the Ukrainian people. Um, but also at the same time, uh, what he's actually doing in destroying the Ukrainian people, as you said, with the, the uh, large scale invasion that they started in, in February 2022, means that actually his his narratives possibly go unheard. People don't want to hear them because, um, because what he says is different to what he is doing. He's talking about kind of the Ukrainians being held hostage by the state, um, the Ukrainian state itself, without really considering or not considering his actions. I'm sure he's probably considered them. Um, but but I, I, I think he... I don't think he's fully realizing um, the lack of support in Ukraine for Russia and the the kind of huge um, unifying force actually that this war has had on the Ukrainian people in bringing them together against Russia. Um, from what I see in terms of Twitter, uh, it seems that there are not as many people kind of out on the streets watching and celebrating. So. Um, I would not necessarily say this is due to like lack of support. It could be that because events can be caught online or because people are away from the city over the holiday weekend. But another thing, and probably the last thing I'll just mention now that struck me about the parade, is the attendance of foreign dignitaries. Um, this is not to say that this was unusual this year in comparison to last year. Last year, there were not many foreign dignitaries there either. But what we're seeing today, for example, is uh, Lukashenko, president of Belarus. And um, we're also seeing like the president of Armenia there, for example. Um, we're seeing kind of he's been able to muster up support or not even support, but the attendance of countries um, that were part of the Commonwealth of Independent States, which he also mentioned in his um, 
in his speech as well. So the actual attendance as well is showing kind of a disengagement of Russia from the West in general and more of a, a pivoting, a, a turning from the West towards uh, south and east of Russia itself. All right, thanks very much. Um, some great points there. Um, I just, just comment on a few. The last, the last uh, thing you mentioned, I think Putin uh, has got to be very happy um, that he was able somehow to get, I think it was seven other former Soviet, seven other leaders of former Soviet republics uh, to come, all five from Central Asia, all five presidents from Central Asia, and then Pashinyan of Armenia and Lukashenko of Belarus. Um, just days ago, it seemed like uh, the Kyrgyz president would, might be the only the only um, foreign leader there. So, uh, kind of wonder how how that you know how that happened. Um, whether it was just sort of some political calculus on their part or uh, pressure. I'm sure there was pressure. I you know I don't know what it was. Um, uh, a couple other things. Uh, you mentioned um, the Immortal Regiment. We had an interesting story about that um, uh, last week uh, about the fact that it, it was basically canceled. And this is something that, as you mentioned, it's kind of it, it was it began in Tomsk as a grassroots uh, thing, and then like a few years ago, maybe in 2015, I think or so, it was kind of co-opted by by the state, and, and I believe Putin. Uh, may have marched in it once or twice, um, but this year it was canceled, as you said. But you know they were citing security concerns. Um, um, but you know we spoke to analysts are, are, uh, and two two other kind of na uh, potential reasons for the cancellation emerged. One of which was um, the fear, potential fear in the Kremlin that people would hold. Uh, posters of you know, their relatives killed in the war in Ukraine, and also just the kind of maniacal, um, I, I, I mean, fear or concern about large groups of, of people gathering in, in any way, really, in Russia, unless it's completely organized. Um, so, so that, uh, you know, that's, that definitely, as you pointed out, was a, a big difference, I think, for this year from, from previous years. Uh, and you also mentioned, you know, his, his speech was kind of as expected, uh, you know, lots of things. What struck me was kind of, it seemed like almost like a speech he could have made and, and all, many of the points or, or false narratives that he has made in, in other recent speeches, like that he could have made on any occasion, you know, not necessarily um, a military parade. Um, you know, he, he had the... Uh, and he, and he began, pretty much began by saying that the, the West, well, he didn't specify the West there, but um, that Russia is, is under attack. He said that once again, a real war has been unleashed against our motherland or homeland. So I think that was really, I mean, that's sort of the narrative, as you've pointed out also, that that's kind of one of the main narratives about the war in Ukraine, um, you know, note. They call that, the government calls that a special operation, but he has no problem suggesting that uh, Russia is in a defensive war against the West. Um, so, and just one last thing I'll mention in this connection is that to me, it seemed like over the years, 
Putin at these at these May 9th um, parade speeches has kind of you know, very often um, suggested or hinted that that the West or the U.S. you know is is threatening um, in the is threatening the world and and Russia in a similar way uh, that to what Nazi Germany did. In other words, threatening to try to take take everything over. Um, and that was always for years. That was kind of the level of hints. He didn't know was he talking about Islamic State or or you know, was he talking about the, the U.S.? But then in recent years, he's become more clear. And now uh, today, you know, he pretty much just said um, this. We're in a defensive war against the West. They're trying to um, take over everything and, um, you know, uh, ruin traditional values and, and lots of other things. So so I felt like it was kind of a speech in which he was repeating his narratives, including false narratives about the, the war in Ukraine. Uh, but in a way that, you know, could have happened at, at, at any speech. But anyway, I'm going to stop uh, um, stop now and open it up to questions. Uh, so if anyone has any questions, uh, you can... Uh, seek, ask for speaker privilege or otherwise... see if we have any questions that have come in. Uh, here's a message. Okay. Um, give it a few more moments. I don't see any questions now. Sorry, Dr. Edwards, I kind of... Uh, monopolized there at the end. Do you want to um, to respond to, to what I was saying or 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 make any other any other points? Thank you, Steve. No, you didn't well you didn't monopolize them. Everything you said was was pretty much everything I always think when I watch these things. I'm always reflecting them wondering is there anything new to this? What's the difference? What am I looking you know I, I think I always start these Victory Day parade um, watchings without um, without knowing what I'm looking for. Uh, and I think a lot of that is to do with the fact that I, I expect certain things from Putin, like what he says is in his speeches. But also sometimes I'm, I feel like anything can happen. Um, I, I'm, with, I'm working with a colleague at the moment on youth militarization, and we're just kind of counting um, and we're, we're off kind of, we're not nowhere near finding out the total number, so please don't ask. But we're kind of counting the amount of projects that youth are being asked to participate in. You know, for example, they're being asked to draw a poster of Peter the First, for example, and submit it for a competition. Or they're being asked to participate in a graffiti um, event where they draw graffitis of veterans of the Great Patriotic War. Or they're being asked to write a letter to soldiers on the front. And we, we sit there sometimes and we think, gosh, there's so much here. This can't reflect a state that is, it feels secure in itself, that feels secure in what it's trying to push or perpetuate into society. When we kind of looked earlier on um, 
just before the war began about, you know, the, the main question was, will a war break out? And a lot of people who focus kind of on rational discourses in international relations were saying, well, no, it doesn't rationally make sense for Putin to actually con conduct this war. But one of the things that was missing was this emotion, was this emotional aspect, this true belief that Putin has in this kind of idea, you know, the ideas he perpetuates about Ukraine belonging to Russia, for example. And and Putin has such conviction in, in that sense, in his ideas. But he's also extremely fragile in the sense that whilst he believes it, he can also sense that maybe others don't. And so what me and my colleague, my colleague, Dr. Jenny Mathers, just in case anyone is interested, um, we, we sit there and we sometimes wonder, you know, how chaotic is all of this? How chaotic is it to kind of live in Russia where you're being bombarded from all of these different um, ideas from multiple different, um, in multiple different ways on multiple different formats? And one of the things that I kind of noticed about Putin's speech is, yes, I expected it, but not in that order. It, it all felt a bit like Putin's consciousness thrown out, um, literally thought out five minutes before the actual speech took place itself it felt very chaotic he jumped from ideas came back to them revisited them the way he spoke showed that he was kind of holding back or trying to hold back some sort of anger and so i, I think one of the things that we we, we, may, we might need to kind of keep in our minds as we continue to learn or or observe russia in terms of its current invasion of ukraine and future victory parades and future speeches from Putin is that there doesn't seem to be a solid plan. Doesn't seem to be a solid plan. There doesn't seem to be a, a, a sense of security that the narratives that they are perpetuating, they have a sense that actually society um, will remain under their control. Or, or that society could one day believe in the narratives that they're pushing today, for example, but tomorrow they could throw that away, could suddenly start disbelieving. I don't know if any of that made sense, but I think that the speech today kind of showcased a sense of chaos. We tend to look at the actual state of the war through the vehicles, through the troops, through the strategy, but actually just looking at the speech itself and the way that Russia conducts itself in society shows a, a new level of chaos, a different level of chaos. I think that makes I think that makes a lot of sense and, and I think a great great point about the uh, the emotion. I mean you mentioned um, I'll try not to go on long about this, but you mentioned, you know, there was no ra before the the invasion in February, the February twenty twenty two, the large scale invasion. You know, the the argument that he wasn't going to go ahead with it was based on the idea that there was there was no rational reason for him to. It was bad for Russia, um, you know, obviously bad for everyone else, um, but he did, and I and I really have come to think um, that emotion you know is is a huge part of what putin has done and uh, emotion and resentment um and and his what you know what people call it, his ahistorical his his ideas about history that are you know mostly inaccurate um uh whether he believes them or not he's certainly pursuing them as if he did um so i think uh you know it's a it's a great great point to to bring up the the the, the you know the kind of 
predominance or the dominance of, of, of emotion in this. Um, obviously, it's disturbing because it means kind of everyone uh, is at the mercy of this um, until, it, until it can be stopped. Um, but also what you mentioned about chaos, I, I agree. I mean, I think, you know, he made the, he made his statements in a, in a, in a strange order. And, um, you know, it, it did seem like he's, he's made, uh, it didn't seem very well thought out. And I think on the battlefield, you can also see that, that kind of chaos happening, you know, uh, you know, around Bakhmut. I mean, you, you, he had an idea, he had a plan. Uh, Russia was going to essentially take over, bring Ukraine to its knees within a few days or weeks. And that hasn't happened. That didn't happen. And now it's, it's, it's kind of ad living. Um, uh, you know, I'm not a military expert, but but um, it it's sort of like that. That's how it seems to me. So um, I think your your points about chaos and emotion are, are very well taken. Okay, um, I will um, just check if there are any questions that have come in. Uh, if not, I will. We can wrap it up. Um, okay, let's do so. Once again, I've been speaking to Alison Edwards, a lecturer at Bath Spa University in the UK and an expert on Russian militarism, youth, memory, and patriotic education. Uh, and my name is Steve Gutterman, editor for Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus uh, in the central newsroom at RFERL. Uh, Dr. Edwards, thanks very much for, uh, for being with us today. Thanks for having me. All right, it's, uh, it's a great conversation. I appreciate your your um, your analysis. Um, as I mentioned at the start, this conversation will be published as a podcast, and you can subscribe to the Week Ahead in Russia and other RFERL podcasts on Apple, Spotify, Google, and other podcast platforms. I'll be back uh, next Monday for another installment of the Week Ahead in Russia. And please keep an eye out for my newsletter, The Week in Russia on Friday. Thanks for listening.